Hello and welcome to the Human Factor Podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name is Michael Esau. My name is Simon Humphreys. We are delighted to welcome our guest on this episode, Eric Tinch. Eric is the Chief People Officer at Sutherland. Eric is an experienced global transformation leader with over 25 years of experience designing, deploying, and implementing organizational strategy, change management solutions, talent management methodologies, organizational effectiveness programs, cultural renewals, global operations, global service delivery, large-scale transformation programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion solutions, and talent development efforts to support company revenue, profitability, growth, and core values. Eric, welcome to the Human Factor podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest. Hey, Michael. Thank you so much. Really, really excited about the conversation. Uh, we've been working our way around the board trying to get it on the calendar. So really excited that we have finally found enough time to have a conversation. Absolutely. No, we're very grateful. And, and we're always grateful for our guests giving up their time. And it's not easy. We appreciate that. But I've been really excited about this episode. The title is Influencing the C-Suite. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording today, putting assumption to one side. One of my pet hates a little bit, which I hear a lot, Eric, is when somebody will say, yeah, yeah, my senior leaders, my senior leaders, they get it. They, they get it. They, they understand it. And I'll go, yeah, but do they believe it? And that's a very, so I want to dig into that a little bit with you, if I may today, because yeah. I think there's yeah. a massive difference between getting something and believing something. Let's just do the context as we do for every episode. Mm -hmm. As the saying goes, the only constant in life is change. Nothing stands still. We are a species in a constant state of evolution. With the advancements in technology, for example, we have seen rapid developments that have changed the fabric of how we live our lives day in and day out. We have spoken many times on this podcast about how technology has changed, how we connect, communicate, transact. We do things completely differently to 10 years ago. My 14-year-old twin daughters still don't believe me when I tell them the internet didn't exist once upon a time. A big challenge, however, is to manage that change at scale. In our personal lives, we choose what changes we make. We are the captains of our own ship. At an organizational level, however, you may need to change something that impacts many thousands of people. You will be competing against other major changes in the organization. And you may have key stakeholders who don't agree with changes being proposed. At an organizational level, change is not a given or an automatic. So what happens? In this episode, we will explore this challenge in real detail and delve into the complexity of not only influencing senior stakeholders on the critical priorities, but then making it happen across the organization and establishing sustaining momentum. So we always start, Eric, with a bit of a scene setter question. Um, yeah. So let's go up about 40,000 feet here. What is your personal view or philosophy when it comes to change you know what is your personal mindset well it, it, it's a great question and and thank you for going through and outlining a bit um you know especially what this part of our conversation would be about now, I, I think i have probably um well i would describe it at least as a fairly strong perspective when it comes to change, uh, strong, but I think practical, right? My, my first thought is one of the hardest things to do on the planet is to change. And that is from an individualistic perspective. So if you take that and you multiply it by the number of people in your organization, that is the multiplier. It is incredibly difficult. And along with it being incredibly difficult, most human beings find it scary. They find it challenging, even when they know it's in their best interest. Even when they know it's in their best interest. Uh, an example that I often share with our executive team is, think about the guy who won a million dollars in a lottery. And now he's telling his family, we are moving from 
a two-bedroom flat into an eight-bedroom, eight-bathroom mansion. Yeah. Immediately, everyone starts to panic. Immediately, everyone starts to panic. On one thought, you're thinking to yourself, well, here's an opportunity to live a better life. But you start to immediately compare that with your present-day life. You immediately start thinking about what you are going to lose as opposed to what you are going to gain. Yeah. And then I couple that with, based upon how our world works, it is change, transform, or die, especially when it comes to business, right? Because it doesn't stand still. Yeah. It is a continuum, but it is very, very difficult, very, very challenging. And um, I, I, I take specific effort in speaking with the executive team, speaking with the leaders, speaking with frontline managers, speaking with employees, and I highlight this very point. It will be one of the toughest things that you will take on as a people manager, as a leader, and as a senior executive, and especially if you're operating in multiple geo. Yes. That is such a refreshing answer. <laughs> the, the, the term, Eric, the term change management is almost, it's almost treated glibly. It's almost yeah. like, yeah, we, yeah, we got to do some change management. You know, yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll be fine. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I think your analogy is a brilliant one. What are we going to lose rather than what are we going to gain? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a very interesting way of looking at change. I, I recall a number of years back, we we had a we we had a lovely conversation with a lady called Marie Noel Gagnon, who's from Cirque du Soleil, and she said, "I'm a product of many mentors." She said. And, one, and, and I feel the same sometimes. And one of mine said to me, Michael, change will only occur when there's discontentment with the current state. You know, that's the big issue. So, Simon, let me bring you in at this point before I dive into my next question. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to agree, uh, you know, in terms of how Eric's described change there. And I think, you know, the way I hear the way you've described that, Eric, is it's not just a, a factual position. It's an emotional decision isn't it you talk about easy to think about what you'll lose rather than gain that's emotion uh, and, and i think sometimes people underestimate the human emotion side of the change it's easy to say well today we do this and tomorrow we'll do something different okay understand the difference but do i want to do that do i do i understand what that is and do i understand what that means me uh, what do i need to do to, mm-hmm. to do that change and i think that's sometimes the bit that's often overlooked yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. And uh, I would argue the base of all of it is human emotion. So so if you take human emotion and you take an individual's belief system, those are two of the hardest things to augment for any human being, right? So let's let's talk about change for, for a second, right? Before there is any substantial change that you can sustain an individual's belief system has to shift from its current state to a different state it may not be the state that you're chasing but it will have to shift to a different state along with that shift is emotional movement it takes both of these aspects to affect change that is sustainable absolutely Eric, my next two questions that I, and I, I sort of decouple them a little bit. What I'd like to understand first and foremost is, as a senior leader, how do you build your own approach uh, in terms of being clear on priorities? And, and this is just prioritization first and foremost uh-huh. when you're thinking about organizational change. And then the second part that I want to then sort of move on to then is, is then how do you then start that process of then influencing others? Now, I'm sure they're intertwined, right? They're, they're going to be massively intertwined but if we could look at the priorities first of all and the the, Simon and I often use the the basis of how are arguments built in the first place when somebody's establishing priorities let's start there if we can yeah yeah sure let's let's start there and and throughout this conversation uh Michael it it will almost sound overly simplified when I start to talk about change and, and, and personally, I will link that to why I think I've been successful in leading change in multiple organizations. The first thing, 
I try to just take the complication out of the conversation. Every opportunity I have, that means find a consistent approach to straight talk. That straight talk must be embodied in the why, why it matters. And if we can get on to why it matters, then we can understand, well, here are the advantages. Here are the disadvantages. Here's what happens if we do nothing. Yeah. Right. Here's the type of investment that you are required to deliver. You have to be fully engaged. And I talk about what engaged means, right? And if you think about the term engage or engagement, it is a willingness to do. That's what engagement is, right? A willingness. So if you take all of these humanistic things and you get at what should we do to help encourage individuals to strengthen their willingness to help drive change. Because often I think there's a perception that there's a change guy. There's the guy who comes up with the vision. There's a guy or or, or a woman who comes up with uh, a specific mission and they become the standard flag bearer. Well, it takes an army. It takes a full-blown active army to move the needle enough that you can substantiate it, right? And then you talk a little bit about how. And I try to simplify the how, right? Here are the first things we have to do. And that is articulate what the change is. Articulate how long it'll take. Articulate what it will involve relative to a shift in a human's life or their day-to-day activity, right? And, and, and I will equate that to a very, very simple example. You take the same route to work every day for five years. There is a detour. That detour is absolutely painful. Yeah. It may actually get you to work faster. It may actually get you to work without, you know, so much traffic. But the fact that you are changing your route causes angst. So organizational change is that times 10, times 100, times 1,000. Yeah. Right? It is. It absolutely is. And I love that in terms of straight talk, consistent approach. So that's that's your framing, right? This Mm -hmm. is your your philosophy. It isn't necessarily your peers. That's correct. That's correct, right? So, That's you know, absolutely like, correct. yeah, yeah. So, th- so let's just get into this a little bit, right? You know, you're, you're part of the C-suite, you're influencing mm-hmm. the C-suite and I'll come on to a question. Uh, I've got a dear friend who's the CHRO and, uh, and we, and I was, I was, I was having a conversation with her a couple of years ago and she said, I can't win every battle. Yeah. I cannot win every battle. I have to pick and choose. And there's some things I'll go to the hill for and <laughs> there's others I won't. So. Can you give us this perspective? It's not a given. You know, you're shaping, as you've just said there, articulate the change, what it will involve, how long it'll take, what does the investment look like? What is your strategy of getting your peers, getting the other members of the C-suite on the bus Uh and motivated and engaged? What does that look like for Eric Tinch? So, So I am a former military guy. Uh, I worked in Air Force uh, military intelligence for about four years, and then I spent the following 10 years working for the CIA, right? So most of what you will hear okay. from me will sound like, uh, <laughs> will sound like uh, special ops or field operations, right? You plan uh, a dynamic mission, and then you say, okay, execute that mission, right? <laughs> so, so, so for me, um, I, I try to use a very simplistic approach, and yeah. that is, dividing a group into two buckets, advocates and adversaries. And advocates, I want them to fully understand why it matters. I want them to fully understand what I need from them in order to affect change. And I need to have them fully understand what leverage they will have to carry from their side. Uh, Relative to uh, adversaries, I spend very little time trying to convince them otherwise. I use adversaries to help me understand the potential barriers as they see them. 
I use the adversaries to help me understand uh, that perception of the world ahead. Because ultimately, you will get unedited, unfiltered, unsolicited guidance uh, around uh, whatever that change is, right? Yeah. So utilizing both to help create a balanced approach, I think is critically important, right? Uh, typically on an executive team, there are maybe 10 people. Yeah. Um, most cases, you're going to have three or four advocates from the onset. And then the rest are either neutral or adversaries. So I take the advocates and the adversaries and I treat them with the same level of attention, the same level of focus. And I take from that to build an execution plan. Ah, love it. That's top tips, right? And and again, going back to change isn't a given, you 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 go you're going into it knowing full well what mm-hmm. your sort of breakdown is, what the ratio is, but you have a strategy of how you are using the adversaries rather than ugh. They're the adversaries. Right. Ah, exactly. They're the blockers, which is the key point. And and the thing is as well, I mean, because the level of change is so great, you know, let's, let's just, I don't know where we draw a line in the sand post-COVID or during COVID or wherever it may be. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at the, the health of organizations, I was looking at a Gallup study uh, for 2023, and it's like 23% of the workforce they reckon is engaged. So with my poor maths, that means 77% uh, are not. Now, mm-hmm. there's a lot in the external context driving that, you know, how people want to work, where they want to work, you know, the, the state of their lives, et cetera. So mm-hmm. do you find yourself in a constant state of flux at the moment in terms of your organization being a living and breathing organism that you're constantly having to maneuver? Can you just give a lens on how you deal with the context mm-hmm. shifting so much. It's like shifting sands, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is like shifting sand. Um, uh, but I think there I think there are two elements coexisting. There is this level of constant flux, right? And that's driven externally and internally. But there is also a part of every organization, call it 20-25%, they are locked in consistently doing things the way that they've always done, them, done. right? Yeah. So so it's not a full organization in a state of flux in my view. It's the external factors, the external factors impact some individuals more than they do others, right? If you think about how I want to work, where I want to work, I don't want to work in an office, I want to work from home. There's a significant group of individuals who never, ever, ever want to work from home. I'm one of those individuals. I prefer to be in an office, to have the structure so I can interact face-to-face with my peers. And, and, and I can enjoy the construct of those four walls. So, so that drops a little bit of stability within the organization while you're dealing with the constant state of flux. That constant state of flux and the bit of stability, I think, brings a balance in an organization. And, and for leaders who are responsible for transformation or responsible for ushering change, finding somewhere in the middle so that you can have a 360-degree view of the impact of the level of engagement, right, the satisfaction of the, of the workforce, and then align that with whatever the change is you're driving, whether that is technology, whether it is a process, whether it is a specific technique, all of these things I think will require the same level of attention and the same level of focus. Yeah, absolutely. Simon, your thoughts. I was interested in the advocates versus adversaries. And and again, I, I love how you've described there the, the finding the bit in the middle that, that serves everybody. But sometimes that's not possible, is it? Sometimes they're diametrically opposed in terms of their needs or their desires or their reasons for objections. Have you got any top tips about how you proceed in those sort of circumstances. I mean, again, looking out to the real world, depending on when this episode goes out, of course, we've got the situation in the American Congress where you've got certain sides and a a clear goal is necessary, but it seems to be a long way away from getting that consensus agreement across a large group of people that are required, probably all of them to change at some point. Uh And, and, by, and by the way, sorry, I'm not asking you to yeah. solve the problems in Congress. I think that's a wider problem. <laughs> but, 
I would agree. Uh, I would agree. However, I think we can, uh, the three of us can provide them some tips. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I think there is, um, I think there's a misconception when it comes to driving change or when it comes to affecting a process. I think there's a misconception that you have to convince everyone to come to the middle. Yeah. It simply will not happen. It will not happen, right? So, so if, if, if I think about net promoter score, for instance, right, you have a group of individuals who are neutral, you have a group of individuals who are detractors, and you have a group that are advocates. Idealistically, you want to ensure that your advocates remain. Yeah. Detractors, if I can bring 1% over, if I can bring 10% over, I have shifted the balance. Yeah. And, and I think that's the work to get done, right? It's understanding through a change process what you're really trying to do. You're trying to shift the balance yeah. more toward advocacy. If you can shift the balance more toward advocacy, it's like flowing water, right? Eventually, more is going to flow toward advocacy. But realizing that there is no utopia. There is no utopian perspective where you end up saying, of the 100 people, I have 100% of them inside. If I, if I can get 71, if I can get 68 inside, you know, maybe I can take the guys who are still adversaries and utilize that group to keep me grounded. Utilize that group to help me understand that we're not yet done. There's so much more to do. I think that's the big takeaway here, actually, Eric, that there is no utopia. There is no panacea. There's always work to be done. Because I think actually there's this view sometimes with organizational change that it's almost viewed in a project-like basis. You know, we do this bit of change for this moment in time. It's a bit like Jason Aberbuck from Leap Gen said to us, you know, I hate the, the term go live, right? right. Get rid of go live. It should be, it should be renamed get started. Yeah. That's when you actually are getting started. So it never ends. Um, I think that's the point. I mean, I think this is going to be a huge takeaway. So I, I referenced my, my my dear friend who is also a CHRO. She was, you know, I can't win every battle, she said. However, you know, she stressed, she said, if I don't have the data, right, if I don't have the evidence to substantiate, however, my argument or the point that I'm making, then I have a challenge, right? I, you know, I'm going to ask you how crucial is evidence in this process? Like, it sounds like a... A, a dumb question but in reality how do you use data how do you use evidence when you're constructing you know your arguments and finding that ballast uh, it, it is absolutely the foundation of solid decision making in my view yeah and, and and i think in most cases you can make some good decisions without um you know a stack of data when you're making decisions across multiple geos, across large employee population, across a diversified product or service offering, data is the center of the universe, right? And 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 as we're driving change or implementing new solutions across Sutherland, there is a focus around what is the view and perspective today. So we ask a ton of questions, right? We do a ton of surveys. Yeah. Once we get through about, you know, 20, 25% of the process, we ask the same questions and we tag in a few new questions, right? Okay. And we do that in quarters, right? The first, second, third, and as we're making the final turn, because that will allow us to make adjustments, right? A well-laid plan often gets challenged. Yep. Right. Often gets challenged. So being nimble enough in the thought process to take that data and use the data to help augment the plan where it makes sense. However, there is uh, a certain level of rigor that I believe for change to be effective, you must take an approach very similar to the pharmaceutical industry, right? Very similar to the automotive industry. And that is yeah. build a spec-based methodology from the onset. Outline, here are what the specs are. And if we can deliver to these specs, that means there's a greater probability we'll get it right. Yeah, absolutely agree. One of my favorite words is rigor. I, I, I say that to my <laughs> wife now. And she sort of laughs at me going, it's not a great word, yeah. Michael. But I'm thinking, well, but, but you have to have a rigorous approach to anything, really. Otherwise, <laughs> you, you, you're never going to see it through, are you? 
a, a little bit of a tangent shift. I do apologize because I didn't really include this in the brief, but as we're on mm -hmm. it, one of the things we observe a lot, Eric, is the absence of success metrics or clear, tangible outcomes. So we'll, we'll hear a lot about data. You know, Simon and I were at the pleasure of uh, talking to Dr. Sasha Hartel. Now, he is the head of analytics for TSG Hoffenheim. They they play in the German Bundesliga, the top level. Sure. And, you know, then the, the big club in their German league is Bayern Munich. Now, TSG Hoffenheim is not the same budget. They're in a completely different part of the world. They have to use data. They have to use analytics. They wow. find talent before it's not talent. And he said he, his observation in the football world is people have a lot of data, but are they clear on what they're using it for? Do they do they have clear success metrics? And we see this a lot, the absence of success metrics. So there are processes in flight all over the place, Eric. And we'll ask the question, how will you know you've moved the needle? How will you know if that process is driving the outcome you're looking for? Tumbleweed. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and again, thinking about the C-suite, I, I think we're in an era now where we're looking at organizational health. And I think there's probably a ton of metrics that sit underneath, but I don't assume them. How do you de determine success at Sutherland, you know, in terms of success metrics or KPIs mm -hmm. related to people or related to productivity or related to culture or climate yeah. or engagement? What, could you give us a lens? Yeah, it's and, and it's an ever-changing lens, right? Um, uh, there there are occasions where success is the ask, like okay. whatever the ask is, that within itself can be success. Uh, if if I am having a conversation with one of the senior executives and they said to me, "Hey, Eric, we need to hire a thousand more people in this geography, and they need one, two, and three." Well, that's your ask. I will measure myself against your ass. That is success in that case. Um, I used the term creating a spec-based organization earlier. It sounds almost too rigorous when you start talking about people and when you start talking about services in an organization. Yeah. But if you take a look at some of the most successful organizations over the last 100 years, central to their success, it's a spec-based organization because within those specs, those specs should be determined around what good looks like. Yeah. And if I can deliver to that spec, I can tell you there has been success. Yeah. In my view, the KPIs are part of the spec. Yes, absolutely. Some of the deliverables, they're part of the spec, right? Yeah. And I talked about the automotive industry. Safety is central for the automotive industry. Yeah. Within that set of specs, these are the things that we are unwavering because we know that it impacts quality. And yeah. if we deliver to the spec, we know that quality has been delivered. Yes. That's how I believe we measure success, even when it comes to change. But I find a lot of leaders are reticent to apply a spec-based methodology to people because yeah. we're living, breathing things, right? Living, breathing organisms. When you say how or why would you want to do that? Because no two human beings are the same. You're right. They're not the same. However, if one of my specs is to ensure that there is an emotional engagement aspect that's measured on a scale of one to 20, if yeah. that is my spec, then guess what? I can measure that human aspect when it comes to correct, correct. That's success. And and just for the listeners, when you say a spec, a uh -huh. spec can be a spec can be a set of processes. It can That's be correct. a set of policies, and this is the behavior of those processes. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It can be a process. It can be a set of behaviors. It can be a group of assessments. It yeah. can be a productivity metric. It yeah. can be utilization. It can be adoption of a new yeah. technology. Yeah. All of these things are confined within spec. Um, a way for us to describe it, a way for us to document it, and ensuring that there is a way for us to measure Correct. all of these aspects. If we can do that, then we can have a bit of predictability, right? But there's always the human factor, right? The, the human factor is willingness, right? That it's. There's no no magic metric for willingness. 
However, all of these other things, we can tie some metrics to those other things. And if we can tie those things, there's an impact. There's an impact. Yeah, absolutely. There should never be a process in flight if you can't measure it. That's my humble opinion anyway. Simon, (laughs) your thoughts? So part of this episode was to talk about influence in the C-suite. And the implication being that the person that needs to do that influence isn't in the C-suite, therefore might not necessarily be experienced in building that spec or articulating that spec Mm -hmm. that is actually ultimately going to positively influence the C-suite. What do you have any tips that you would give to people approaching the C-suite as to how to constitute that spec? It's it's a great question. I think it's a bit challenging to take a leader who's not operated with the spec-based mentality and have them go to the C-suite to help develop it, right? Uh, My advice would be to partner with a leader, whether they're in C-suite or not, who operates from a spec-based mentality as part of their day-to-day job. And in most cases, identify a leader who's been successful or is recognized by the organization as being successful when it comes to leading spec-based projects and initiatives. And then you find the advocates and the adversaries, they play a huge role in clarifying what that spec-based approach should be. To identify that sponsor if you like, is, is, the, is the key to that. So not not necessarily even thinking about the full C-suite, but just your single sponsor within the C-suite that can then help you articulate and communicate beyond. Absolutely. And and I'll, I'll give you an example for myself. Um, we uh, developed a three-year roadmap for our digital transformation across the global people office and into the rest of the organization. As we were getting started, I was having a conversation with our with our CEO and said, well, tell me who within our technology group is the most brilliant executive that you know of in the company you enjoy working with the most. And he gave me that person's name and I said, awesome. I called them up and I said, this is what I want to do and I want you to help me. And it was a gift that is still giving, absolutely <laughs> still giving. <laughs> didn't you didn't you have a system eric where you could put in your talent search and uh, and say i i need these certain <laughs> exactly I, I can put it into my ai hub yeah have my ai hub give me a bit of uh, analytics and a little bit of analysis that i can apply i uh, love it i love it right. yeah, i love it love it it's good but it's great though to have that natural intelligence though in terms of and it is intelligence, isn't it, around talent mm-hmm. within within the C-suite. You know, that's your guy. Go, go to that person. Absolutely. No, I, lo- I love that. Absolutely. Right at the outset, you know, you talked about change, transform, or die. It's one of the hardest things ever. So let's just then talk about implementing change, right? I hate the word implementing change. I hate the word implementing, <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? I, I, I don't like it. Keeping momentum, making it happen right you know it, there's never an end to it again philosophy thoughts approaches you know where yeah. does your rigor how do you translate your rigor for keeping that going great so i talked about spec base again right we have stacked more scorecards on top of these specs that help us measure how well we're performing against the specs right so we use that as intelligence yeah. we use that to help us augment the path and occasionally you have to shift the path in order to not lose momentum. Right. Um, and, and, and sometimes that shows up as, uh, never sacrifice quality for the sake of speed. Yeah. We want a project done on time and on budget. However, there are times that you'll have to offer, you know, that, uh, that entire approach in my view. And also, a word I use softly with uh, with uh, my own leadership team, and that is, you have to evangelize these processes, yeah. right? And and there are times that it gets a little bit exhausting. You've got to go to every meeting. You've got to continuously have conversations about how well, or you know, in some cases when things aren't going well, being straightforward and honest with the masses and with the other stakeholders around the organization about the effort, whatever that effort is. But it acts 
absolutely required some evangelizing. So, so I think I used the term earlier, you have to recruit an army. Yeah. And in, our, in order to keep the army focused, you have to ensure that they are capable, ensure that they are ready for the battle, ensure that they have everything that's required to enable them while they are helping to drive the change across the organization. And then evangelize, 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 and walk the talk Yeah. That's not easy for everybody, though, is it? it it's very difficult, uh, and yeah. especially if you find yourself in a process where you're driving change that you know is going to take multiple years. For instance, uh, when when I started with uh, with Sutherland, I was sitting now with the CEO, and we were talking about uh, what I thought the road ahead looked like, and if I could just give a brief vision of the road ahead. I started with this is a 48 to 60 month journey. And his immediate response was not doable. We, 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 we need to get this done in about three months. And, and I, I chuckled and I said, not doable. It will take time. And articulating the timeline early and often, and then tying that back to why it matters yeah. is critically important. I, I love that. It's, it's don't bluff, don't lie, don't, don't kid the kidder, right? Absolutely. And, and there's nothing to gain. I think often leaders um, uh, get uh, a little bit, um, you know, out over their skis a bit when they start talking about the length of time, right? Yeah. And, and if we lean into science and how long it takes an individual to adopt and sustain time, uh, team, right? Yeah. Even something simple, minimum 90 days. Yeah. Even something simple, your route to work, 90 days. So imagine if you're changing an organizational process. Yeah. It's 12, 12, 18 months per individual, per individual. Right. I was reading a book. I was reading something about habit formation the other day. And there was something like 28 days to form a habit and seven days to lose it, which is why everybody <laughs> mails their gym memberships in the beginning of a year and stuff like that. Exactly. Simon, let me bring you in before I dive into my last couple of questions. So, Eric, you say that change takes time, and I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and but change can also be exhausting. Yeah. How, how do you personally you know, keep your energy levels high in some of those exhausting times? A, a really, really good question, right? I keep going back to the mission at hand, and 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 whenever I am just completely exhausted myself, or I look at the team and I can tell that they're getting a little bit worn, especially if it's a multi-year transformation that you're driving i'll take everyone back to the mission yeah this is why we are here this is why this is why it matters it sounds so simple it sounds so simple but it's as though you're taking the brain back to the beginning and you're forcing a refresh if you don't force that refresh you can drift into the work so deeply that it just becomes very robotic, very robotic, right? And you get exhausted. But often I'll have the team go back to the mission. This is why you are here and this is why it matters. And we try to simplify that. And I do that with the depth of deliberateness for myself as well as for the team. Yeah, it goes back to purpose, doesn't it? The reason for being, the reason for doing. Absolutely. So, Eric, we, we incorporated a question about as we move into the next 10 years, we, we will we'll continue to see rapid change, especially with the explosion of AI, for, for, for example. Now, when Simon and I were preparing for today, you know, I said to Simon, I said, I really want to get Eric's viewpoint on how will AI influence uh, the way we work? How will it influence the behavior of organizations? And Simon was keeping me on tack but yeah let's not get in michael to the benefits of ai and what ai is and uh, and he said let's let's keep focusing on what's the implication however of ai and that level of disruption to the c-suite because it is going to change how the organization behaves because you know go back to your spec-based model there's no ifs or buts ai is going to change the behavior of processes it's going to change the behavior of people so with this explosion how will we create a greater change agility as we go forward? So, for example, Eric, outside of work, I believe now we are the designers and the curators of our own experiences. Okay? 
you know, if I go to an an IKEA store, for example, I can go through the whole store without even talking to anybody from IKEA, right? Yeah. I mean, they even yeah. have me picking my goods. You know, that's a completely self-designed experience. Uh, the way I consume technology at home, etc. But we don't seem to have that level of agility and flexibility in the workplace. How do you see this playing out in the next ten years? Yeah, I, I'll I'll lean back into my my last answer about how long it takes change to take hold and sustain it. That 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 hasn't changed since we've been studying human beings. True. I think I think what AI will do, it will shift the critical thinking process. Yeah. It will shift the decision making process. Yeah. The humanistic aspects will follow the same path. We've been following since we started walking upon the earth, right? So if you think about what AI does, it just accelerates the view of data. It accelerates the perspective from many, many sources condensed down to one. So the first thought is efficiency. Then, then the second thought is, well, you know, how can we reduce cost? How can we reduce work effort? How can we shift how people work? Well, I think you will, I think you can, but ultimately I think the most direct impact with AI is around critical thinking, which impacts critical decision-making. But some of those humanistic behaviors will almost be unchanged, right? So, so if, if I think about something as simple as a grocery shopping experience, Years and years ago, you can go into a grocery store and there's a line. You just you queue up and you go to the register and the person's nice, they ring your goods, they bag them, you walk out. You go into many of these establishments today and you have to scan yourself, yeah, bag yourself, and eventually you get accustomed to it. You just get accustomed to it. Yeah. But the moment there's a lane with cashiers, more than 50% of the people revert back to that line. It's the experience, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so the humanistic behavior tied to intentional experiences have a direct impact on customers and a direct impact on how we interact with each other. <laughs> this is great. It's great. It's great. Eric, I mean, Simon and I are extremely privileged to be in these conversations. I've, I've, I've loved today. I have really loved today. And, I'm, and if I may, you. Uh, you really energize me, Eric. And, May I ask, who are your influences, right? You know, because in in life we take influences from others, don't we? May uh, I may I ask yeah. yours? Yeah, I, my my core influences are. Let me start with my parents. Right, my parents grew up on a farm, and and they were married at an early age, and they were able to do some amazing things just by executing on the core principles that they thought would make a difference, right? Yeah. So, so, so early on, I got this level of indoctrination that, well, look, if you focus on these core things that you believe matter, then you can affect change. You can affect the outcome. Uh, and, and then, you know, you can look around. Uh, we have a wonderful CEO that I work very closely with, and he's a visionary. And then um, I, I think the base, the basic grounding on believing that you personally can make a difference. Yeah. That's the yeah. motivator. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. And I love it. I love that it goes back to your parents. I believe a, a lot of mine goes back to my parents too. Our last question, Eric, and it's always, it's always a popular one. We always feel a bit guilty, Simon and I, about asking it because it's almost like, <laughs> yeah, you've given us tons, right? You've given us loads and loads of stuff. Now we're going to ask for more. Our listeners are going to get to the end of this conversation today. And what would be your one or two things that you would leave them with to take away, Eric? Um, I, I think the, the, the top thing that I would um, share when it comes to any level of change, get engaged. Get engaged, even if you're not a change agent, so to speak, right? Even if you're not on the change team, even if you don't own the initiative, get engaged yourself yeah. because it will broaden your perspective. It'll just broaden your perspective, right? And with the broad perspective, idealistically, it will impact your level of engagement, right? That, that, that is the one thing that I often coach managers and leaders uh, inside of Sutherland. And, and it's not even about change. It's about how do you impact your own environment? 
and you impact that by getting engaged. I love that, Eric, because I, I often look to Michael to help me get through some of those exhausting conversations and those difficult times. And, and he has great advice for me, which is be on the pitch. Yeah. If you're yeah, on the pitch, absolutely. then you can influence things. You can, you can get involved. If you're not on the pitch, you're just in the stands, you're just going to watch it happen. Exactly. That's exactly right. That, that's yeah. that's uh, just last week. I was in a session where we were redesigning an organizational process, and the gentleman I was working with used the exact same example that you just outlined. And he's like, "Look, if if you really want to make a difference, if you want to shift this needle, you've got to be on the pitch. Yeah. You've got to be on the pitch." Well, any any final one? Look, I'm I'm just greedy now, aren't I? I'm just greedy. Uh, uh, Eric's going to be invoicing me at some point. Is there one? Is there one final final one that you'd leave us with? There, there, there is one final one that I will leave you with that sounds overly simple, and you, you gotta have a sense of humor. You, you, yeah. you really have to have a sense of humor, even if it's your own weird style of, of humor. You have to have a sense of humor because. The work is hard. Whenever emotions are involved, the air is thicker. The air is thicker when emotions are involved. So if the air is thicker, you breathe differently. If you breathe differently, you operate differently. So if there's an opportunity just to have a bit of humor and be able to laugh and chuckle about some of it and then say to yourself, hmm, maybe some of this stuff is not that serious. It's serious, but maybe it's not that serious. Just a sense of humor in the midst of it all. Make the air thinner. Right. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Right. I, 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 honest to God, I have adored this conversation. I was looking forward to it. I know it's taken a while. You're a very, very busy man, but this has been amazing. What a fantastic conversation. I cannot thank you enough. I think our listeners and Simon and myself uh, will be regurgitating much of this, I think, for the time ahead of us. So, Eric, thank you. Michael, thank you so much. Simon, thank you as well. Uh, it has been a delightful conversation, and honestly, it feels like we've been talking for about six minutes. Yes. <laughs> Eric, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, Simon, I think as we said at the end, oh, it was a pleasure meeting Eric. I'm going to go first today, if that's all right, with my uh, takeaways. I liked Eric's way of looking at the sea level in particular i'm not going to get 100 on board right it's almost like i'm gonna i'm gonna have my advocates there's going to be the adversaries but his way of looking at the benefits of both and what he would get from both i think is smart i think it's seriously smart i mean at the outset he said organizational change is hard really hard so having that outlook i think it's just super smart super pragmatic really a realism, if you like, about what organizational change entails. I'm completely on board with this spec-based model. What is it you're trying to do? Why? How? What? Is it process, policy, behavior? How are the KPIs then weaved into that? You've got your dashboards on top. Where are we? Have we moved the needle? Super, super smart. But he was really clear, wasn't he, that the multiplier effect of organizational change is just super, super hard. And is, is, is one of his takeaways or leave behind at the end was get engaged. Love that. And I thought he was a very easy guest to listen to, very articulate, but very engaging as well. But I, I was particularly struck by the thinking of change from the human element again. Eric opened the conversation, you know, fantastically by, by just putting things in that context. You know, people find it scary and challenging to change, even when they know it's beneficial to them. Yeah. You know, he talked about taking the detour on the road and the fact that you could get there sooner and less traffic, but it's different. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes people struggle with that. And, you know, then getting into the fact that it's probably just as easy to think about what you're going to lose just as much as what you're going to gain from any change. Yeah. And that gets you yeah. into this negative spiral. So uh, I loved how he, he you know, made sure that that human aspect was always considered. Uh, and of course, then taking it to his own personal experiences when we when we had a chat about you know what happens when you get exhausted, how do you reset, how do you get yourself back on track, and you're going back to that first mission statement, and you know what what's the change really all about as a way of refreshing and re-energizing, which I thought was a great piece of advice because I think we've all been there at some point in time, 
where we're trying to do something different and it's just it's, it's just in the too difficult camp sometimes isn't it yeah and you have to sort of constantly remind yourself well why am i doing it what why did i start this journey and that gives you that you know maybe that boost of energy to keep going but but you asked that question didn't you about the momentum piece and and he said you sometimes you have to shift the path yeah to keep momentum however you can't sacrifice safety for speed for example but that doesn't mean that you still can't keep that momentum. No, I thought that was a smart question, you know. But to your point as well with the advocates and, and adversaries, it doesn't have to be 100% consensus across all. It's about shifting the 1%, the 10% or whatever it might be to just shift the balance. You know, sometimes if you're holding out for 100% consensus, you'll never get there. And that's, no. you know, just unachievable. So... Okay, sometimes it's possible, but sometimes it isn't. And recognising when it isn't and recognising where that balance needs to be, if it's not 100%, I think is really important. I liked that Eric talked about the seriousness of change, the difficulty of change at a practical level. I thought his anecdotes were tremendous. But he brought realism to it. You know, not a panacea, not this... You know, shining glory and it's one and done and it's dead easy and you just implement you just off you go absolutely not this is tough hard are people ready you know he talked about the army of people and uh you know i think his background was 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 coming into some of that and but he brought a realism to it yeah but um, not forgetting that that final tip as well retaining a sense of humor along the way oh, as well yes I thought that was a very, very smart piece of advice you know yeah. keep the humor otherwise you lose your sanity almost won't you yeah. Great pleasure to meet Eric. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. So, Simon, until the next one, as we always say, going for a cup of tea, I think. <laughs> Put that kettle on. As is, as we always say, I hope the listeners enjoy the conversations as much as we do. And we do encourage people to, you know, if they if they do enjoy the conversations, you know, subscribe as well, so that then the the, the episodes are constantly pushed to you rather than having to hunt them down. Yes, yes, that we do. We do have one request today, don't we? Please subscribe. And that actually helps us too. When we're talking to guests and we're talking about the reach and the size of the podcast and how many people listen, uh, having a good set of subscriber numbers is a very, very big help. And it just helps us to get really good guests. And, uh, you know, our listeners may not be aware, but all of our guests appear free of charge. And we're very grateful for that. We, we don't pay any guest fees. We're not a commercial podcast. So... It is important that when we are approaching guests that we have some really good data. And so if you could subscribe or follow or leave feedback, we would really appreciate it. Anyway, until next time, Simon, goodbye.